like you to, if you would, uh, again, grab your Bibles and uh, move to the book, which is called 1 John. It's towards the end. It's just before Revelation. And um, for the next three weeks, Pastor Kevin and I will be presenting sermons from the book of 1 John. It's three weeks, but we have five chapters. So rather than try to get all five of them in three weeks, what we've decided to do is choose chapter number one, chapter number three, and chapter number five. And so accordingly, what we're calling it is the odds of 1 John 1, 3, and 5. The writings of the Apostle John have always been of my favorites. You know, if, um, if I'm talking with somebody about God and they don't have too much knowledge about God or they want to know where to go in the Bible to, to, to learn of God, I very often will direct them to the Gospel of John or to one of these letters, especially this first letter. John, of course, wrote the fourth Gospel. He wrote this letter and two others, and John was also the author of the book of Revelation. John was an older man when the Holy Spirit inspired him to write these books. And I think that his wisdom and his many years of reflection certainly must have played a big part in his writing. I imagine that people sought out his wisdom and his perspective on faith and his guidance for living in faith. But hey, who won't come to an older man of great wisdom, right, and ask for guidance, right? All right, anyways. It went over better mark in the first service. (laughs) Anyways, yeah, I'm probably not that one you go to. Um, The fact is, though, that John has wisdom, reflection, and knowledge. He has reflection, wisdom, and knowledge that few people in history have ever had. Think of it. As a young man, he was a disciple of John the Baptist. He was with John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist was arrested, then Jesus himself invited John to be one of his disciples. He was personally present with Jesus at the raising of Jairus' daughter. And he was with Jesus and Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw Jesus transformed into the bright light. He was also in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. And he was present at Jesus' trial at the house of the high priest. And then he also stood at the foot of the cross and watched Jesus die. And at that time, he also heard Jesus ask him to watch over his mother. John was also one of the first to see the empty tomb and witness the physical presence of our risen Lord. And then he was also there with the other disciples who had already seen the risen Lord and with Thomas who had not and who was doubting that he had actually risen. But he was there when Jesus appeared in the room and Thomas the doubter dropped to his knees and said, My Lord and my God. 
John famously ended his first gospel by writing, Jesus did many other things. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would have been written. That's an amazing thing to say. That means there's a lot of things that Jesus had taught, right? But that being said, it's interesting that this letter is so short. But maybe it has something to do with the wisdom that comes with age. But throughout this letter, the first John letter that Kevin and I will be presenting, John clearly explains who God's people are, how God's people must live, and why God's people can be assured of eternal life. So I'd like to direct you to the scripture now. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Actually, 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So here in this first paragraph of the first letter, John is talking about the word of life. He's talking about fellowship. And he's talking about joy. Now John's letter begins proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God who has appeared in the flesh. That is, Jesus is the full revelation of the eternal God and of his eternal love for all of us, all mankind. Most commentators believe that John's primary motive for writing this letter was to correct heretical teaching. That is, teachings that challenge the true gospel message. With the rapid spread of Christianity and Christian teachings, there were just different letters from different apostles, and, and the story of Jesus was spreading rapidly throughout the land after, after his resurrection. And with that came teachers who may not have wanted to or may have mistakenly been teaching false doctrine, things that were not right. And some of the teachers also claimed to have some special knowledge Knowledge which only the enlightened ones would get. And so there were things going on with the spread of the gospel where the gospel was being, um, you know, it was misinforming people. It was, it was not true. It was not right. One of those teachings was called docetism. And docetism is where Jesus is taught that he was, he was um, only appeared physical. That was what they would teach. They said, he only appeared physical. He was like an apparition. He was divine, but he was not human. He was like a ghost that people could interact with. Sounds crazy, right? That people would think that, but people really did believe that, and that was being taught. That was one of the heretical teachings. Another one was called Serinthianism, and here this was that they taught that Jesus was, yes, Jesus was in fact a man who was born... But then when he went to see John the Baptist and he came out of the water, then the Christ came upon him. 
and stayed with him all the way through his three years of ministry until he hung on the cross and just prior to his death left. And so Corinthianism was teaching that there was something like two people at once. There was a Jesus and there was a Christ. They weren't the same. And I said these teachers believed that they had special knowledge. And, you know, one of the things that they said was that they, they were, they were um, absolved from many things that we would term as immoral. They were involved in immoral sin, but yet they were given a certain dispensation. All of this... I believe is happening because of what I said. The people of the first century did not have the complete New Testament as we do now. And as a result, I believe that these kinds of false teachings took place. But John calls these heretical teachers out in this letter. He calls them out. And he corrects their false teachings throughout the letter. But with these first words, he's talking about the humanity of Jesus Christ. And We read it, but I'll put it in our language right now, okay? John is saying, listen, I was one of the original apostles. We lived and walked with Jesus. I knew him personally. I touched him. I watched him die. I was with him and touched his risen eternal body. Jesus was not some kind of ghost. Jesus was not a man possessed by a divine spirit. Jesus was and is fully man and fully God. And Jesus is and was eternally present with the Father in the beginning and remains eternal with the Father forever as the Son of God, period. And John was not alone in this. All of the apostles were proclaiming these truths. Peter writes in the second letter, his second letter, he writes, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from the God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. I will always remind you of these things. And I'll make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. This is the heart of the apostles. The heart of the apostles were the truth of the gospel. And not only did they want the truth of the gospel to be known, but they they wanted true fellowship. They had wanted fellowship of the believers around the truth. And John speaks of fellowship. He sees, says that true gospel fellowship requires a source for truth. Praise God we have the, the, the word of God right now, the complete word of God. This is our source for truth as we have fellowship with one another. But what would hopefully have happened in John's mind is that this letter would be circulated throughout all of the land where Jesus was being taught and this correction would be made. So John wants believers coming together and to have these gatherings centered on gospel truth. But then he also wants to make certain that this gospel truth and this fellowship is not only with the apostles, but fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And he says that because this is what our Lord wanted. 
In John's gospel, he has, on the 17th chapter, you can see a wonderful prayer that Jesus makes to the Father. And one of the things he prays is this. Read. I'll read to you. My, fa- my prayer is not for my disciples alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The apostles, Jesus, they are they're just wanting fellowship to go forward throughout time until Jesus comes back. Fellowship that is centered on Scripture, where everyone helps one another grow in their faith. There's a great proverb that many of us know, and it says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And that's what happens in true gospel fellowship. We come along each other, and we, we pray, and, we, and we, um, we, we have a scripture maybe that would be very meaningful to somebody in a, in, a, in a particular circumstance. John calls for ongoing fellowship and the strengthening of our faith. And John speaks for all the apostles saying, we write these things to make our joy complete. Joy complete. We, make these, we write these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, you wonder, how could the apostles have joy? Everywhere they went, people wanted to kill them. As a matter of fact, just about every one of the apostles up to this point when John is writing this letter, all of them have had a martyr death. Terrible things. The Apostle Paul, who's still living, is being beaten for the gospel. Joy? Well, there's a big distinction between joy and happiness. Everyone wants happiness. We have times of happiness, don't we? I saw pictures the other day, of a, or just this morning, of a, of a wedding. A young couple in Fort Lauderdale. Happiness. Everybody's joyful. But it was a happiness joy. This joy that the the apostles are talking about is a divine joy. This is a joy that only comes from knowing that the gospel has been spread. Have any of you here had the privilege that it is to be able to sit with somebody who is not a believer and to show them the gospel, to give them your testimony, and then have them get it? And when they get it, you see that they've gotten it. And you ask, would you like to pray to receive Jesus into your life? Yes. Can I pray with you? Yes. And then you pray. And when you do that, you come away from that experience with such joy. That's the divine joy that the apostles are talking about here. All right? It is a joy that comes from the spread of the gospel. Because you know with this person that you just had this experience with, you may have the opportunity to become a lifelong and trusting friend as a fellow believer. You also know that in some way you have extended the torch of God's light into the world because they're not going to let it go. And you can trust that God's word will go forward in similar other ways. Jesus speaks of joy also. 
Jesus speaks of joy. Do you know when he speaks of joy in that same prayer before the garden? Jesus knows where he's going. He knows he's going to go on the cross. But listen to what he prays. He's talking to his father. He says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they, we, may have the full measure of my joy within them. This is the joy that John writes of at the end of that passage. The joy of knowing that we have a life eternal with God. The joy of knowing that our Savior made a way for us to have that life. That is the joy. And the joy of knowing that we have the privilege and the opportunity to be able to share that joy with others. So now I'd like to direct your attention to the next paragraph in the chapter. In my, in my Bible, it's, it's titled Light and Darkness, Sin and Forgiveness. Sin and Forgiveness, oh no, we're taking a hard turn here. Let me read for you. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. Him, God, Jesus. Jesus taught them, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all our unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. You know, if you read through this, it can be terrifying or it can be spinning. You could be like, wait a minute, where, what's going on here? Again, what's going on here is John is guiding us in certain ways, but he's also helping us to understand what it is to walk with God. He guides us by saying the importance to living in true fellowship is walking in the light. The light is so important. The light is how God began the Bible. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John, but in the beginning... God said, let there be light. So light is so important. That was God coming into creation. But in these few verses that I just read, John's wisdom concisely captures in words the essence of God. Here John proclaims what the Lord taught him. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And this short passage that God is light, in him there is no darkness at all, concisely, perfectly captures God's pure, perfect, and glorious majesty. The verse also clearly establishes that in his perfect light, nothing is dark or hidden from God. And that's true. King David knew that. In Psalm 139, King David wrote this. He wrote, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light becomes night around me. 
Even the darkness will not be darkness to you. The night will shine like day, for darkness is as light to you. John writes this way in verse 6. He says, if we claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. We lie and don't live out the truth. And then look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, if we claim to be without sin and deceive ourselves, and and the truth is not in us. And if we claim to have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Now here again, John is really attacking the heretics, because the heretics are saying that they are walking with God, but they're, they're saying it's all right to be in sin. He's saying, no, you're, you're, you're either a liar, or you're making God out to be a liar. And the heretics claim that the spiritual knowledge, their enlightening it gives them the opportunity to sin and not be outside of the walking with God. And John's condemning these false teachings. And that's what he's doing. But these teachings are not just for the first century heretics. These passages and these teachings are also for me. And they're also for you. For anyone to claim to have fellowship with God, the problem is obviously sin. Or as John puts it, not living out the truth, walking in darkness. The problem is also, as John writes in verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. There are people active in the church who profess faith, yet they rationalize ongoing sin in their lives. That's true. We all know that. There are situations John warns about. He says, true believers cannot be comfortable living in continual sin. True believers, however, can experience doubt about their salvation because of lingering sin. And it can seem like as one sin is conquered, others prevail, causing us to feel separated from God. So this paragraph and these, these passages here Leave us in a quandary. Am I am walking with God or if I'm not walking with God? Am I in sin? Am I, you know, should I be doubting my salvation? I have lingering sin. Paul even wrote about lingering sin. I have lingering sin. What am I going to do about this? You know, people say that when you embrace faith and become a child of God, you step onto a path of sorts. And that what happens, and I guess this is true in some way, what happens is you live out your life growing step by step to be more like Jesus, right? That's what we want. That's what it is. But a misunderstanding occurs when we find ourselves in sin, having fallen off the path, we feel defeated. And fear that we may have damaged our fellowship with God. It says it right here. You're out of fellowship with God. And then doubts of our salvation come into mind. And we may even begin backsliding in a big way. One of them, one man that used to be in our church, uh, went out across the street and he shared the gospel with somebody with an evangelism explosion um, meeting. And it turns out the man he was uh, sharing the gospel with was a good friend of mine. And he, this man, accepted Jesus Christ into his life. 
It was big news. I was really happy. Well, a number of years later, I was having lunch with this man who accepted Christ. And I said, so, um, hey, how's it going? How's your walk with God? And he just kind of did this. He said, Dan, I blew it. I blew it. I I meant it when I prayed it, but I, I haven't lived a life. And I could tell he was uncomfortable with it because he had doubts about whether he was with God anymore. And he had insecurities. And these doubts and insecurities, by the way, are not common to this man. They're to all of us who find ourselves walking through life and having sin. But we have to remember that the Apostle James teaches us something in his book. He says, God chose us, chose to give us birth through the word of truth. And whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives them freedom and continues in it, they will be blessed in what they do. So James is saying that we were born of God, but that what we need to do is be intent and have the resolve to continue looking into the word of God and to have the word of God direct our lives. But it doesn't say anything about the fact that we may make mistakes from time to time and and be involved in sin. But God chose us to be his children, and James tells us to intently resolve to living according to his word. And that is what we're called to do, to intently resolve to live according to his word, regardless of when we fall off the path. We stay resolved. Let me talk about resolved. There's a story about Socrates. You may know who Socrates is. A young man came to Socrates, and he went to Socrates and said, Socrates, will you teach me what I need to know about truth? And so Socrates uh, wanted to see if the young man had the resolve to learn about truth. So he took the youth with him, and he said, follow me. And he went down to the water, and he walked into the water, and he motioned for the boy to come follow him into the water. And the young man waited. They were up to their waist in the water. And Socrates immediately took him by the shoulders and rammed his head under the water and held him under the water for quite a while. The young boy started flailing, wanting air, right? And so Socrates lifts him out of the water. The young boy's flabbergasted. And Socrates says, when you fight for truth, as you fight for breath, come back and I'll teach you. What is your resolve to walking in the way of the Lord? Is your resolve to want to live according to the scriptures of God the same as your resolve to wanting to breathe air? That's what we need to know. And that's how we, we, um, that's how we think about how we're doing in our walk with God. Next week, we're going to start out chapter 3, and it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And we are that. We are children. And he loves us with unconditional love. And you know what unconditional love means? Unconditional love means nothing separates us from his love. So let's talk about that path again. I said when we embrace faith into our lives and we embrace Jesus Christ into our lives as our Lord and Savior, what happens? Do we enter into a path where we are now going to be more like Jesus 
And, and by the time we get to the end of the path, we have gotten there and we can go to heaven? No. We do walk a path wanting to be like Jesus, but when we accept Jesus Christ into our heart and we ask him to be the Lord and Savior of our heart, we immediately are there. We are immediately made righteous. We are immediately having all our sin, not only the sin that we have had, but the sin that we will have, all of that sin put on the back of Jesus Christ. And instead, what he has done is he has transferred his righteousness to us. We are fully righteous. Yes, we have a step-by-step walk through life, but it's life's experiences. And what we need to have is that resolve to live the rest of our life and go through those life experiences, resolving to always turn to the word of God for our guide and how we should live. But we don't fall away from God. We are his children. And we always will be. There's no room for doubt. You're his kid. John ends this first chapter and begins the second chapter with encouraging truths, writing about sin. He says that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So on those times, walking through life and we make a bad turn, we're still righteous, we're still God's child. But John instructs us saying, at any time, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Because Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I think you'd join me in saying what an amazing God we have, right? What an amazing Redeemer we have in Jesus. Let me pray. And then as I'm praying, why don't you stand and we're going to have our last hymn, Make Me a Blessing. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, look at your word at any time. And thank you, God, for being in our hearts, being the Lord of our lives. Thank you, God, that we can turn to your word and be um, enlightened and we can be reminded that you always love us no matter what. And thank you, Lord, for giving us the power of your Holy Spirit so that when we wake up in the morning and we put our feet on the floor, we can say, God, please be with us today. Be with me today. Help me speak, think, act, and love the way Jesus would have me do that.